First Chronicles, chapter 29, and we'll be starting at verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted ahead above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people? that we should be able thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all the fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this Abundance that we have provided for building your a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statues, performing all that he may build the palace which, for which I have made provision. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me 
in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let me ask you, do you want to be rich? Really rich? Are you rich? What do you have? Being rich is possible. Maybe you're squirming already. That sort of talk puts you right off. You wouldn't put it like that at all. No, no, that's not me at all. Not rich, necessarily. But you would like to be content. Of course, doesn't everyone? Is that really too much to ask? So let me ask you, are you content? Is that too much to ask? Well, it is possible. So if you want to be rich or at least content this afternoon, well done, you've come to the right place. The Apostle Paul is going to show us how to be content, but he doesn't stop there. He will go on to show us how to be rich. So we've come to this last installment of our series in the letter to the Philippians. And as we've heard in these verses, Paul deals with some practical matters between him and his readers. But as ever, Paul is saying more than that. In particular, he knows if we've read this letter or they've heard it, he'll know what will be on their minds. Because if we've been paying attention all the way through so far, well, we'll be realizing the weight of what we've heard will have realized that following Christ cannot be any mere hobby. It's not something we do if we feel like it. It's not something we might add to other things we were doing or pursuing already. If Jesus is Lord, then everything, all of life, must change. Who we are, what we do, what we live for, what we give ourselves to, who we live for, who we give ourselves to. And so we're coming to the last chapter with these sort of things on our mind as the challenges that have been presented dawn on us. We are also asking, but but what will this mean for my security, my resources, therefore my future? Well, that's what Paul is addressing in these verses as he closes the letter. And let me say as we begin that if we this afternoon are merely citizens of this world, his words are going to leave us unsatisfied. In fact, they really might not make any sense. Well, even more than that, you might well disagree with what he says. But if we are citizens of heaven, which as followers of Christ, that is what we really are, 
then we'll begin to see how we can be content even while we are here on earth. We'll see how we should be thinking of our money and possessions because of how wealthy we are. So first, Paul tells us how to be content. Contentedness, that sounds maybe somewhat humdrum, but therefore we think, well, yet not too much to ask. Surely that's reasonable. Everyone thinks that, and yet at the same time, it seems so elusive. I wonder what do we think will make someone content, or shall I put it more bluntly, what will make you content? For many of us, often we think, don't we, there's just that one thing. If only I had that one item, that job, or that relationship, or that position, whatever it is, if I had that, then I would be content. Although you'd have thought we'd have learned by now. What I mean is, I guess in the past, there was that one thing we thought, if only I had that, it would make everything right. And uh, we got it. But what then happened? Well, we might have been on a high for a bit. But soon enough, there was that new aspiration, if only I get that. And on it goes. Well, maybe it doesn't go on in that. Maybe you did set up that one thing for contentment and it's never come. We haven't had it. Maybe this has gone on for years. Maybe even now it looks as if we're never going to get it. Does that mean then we can never be content? And it's not just not being content. If that's our situation, maybe there's been a growing resentment, even bitterness, even towards God. Why won't he just give me this one thing? So therefore, should we give up on being content? content. Paul says, no, listen in. He wants to show us. Starting with verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul is rejoicing yet again. We've seen this so many times. Why? Well, he's had in view this generosity the Philippians have shown towards him. And Paul is grateful for that gift, but that improvement, if you like, in his own personal circumstances is not the reason for his rejoicing. So what is it? Well, after all, as he goes on in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Here's the dictionary definition of contentedness. It is feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. But notice what Paul is saying here. Contentment is independent of our earthly circumstances. If that is true, that is why whatever our situation here and now, contentment is possible. You don't need the next thing before you can be content. I wonder if this stage, do you actually believe that? Virtually nobody in London does. It's all about what they've got here and now down here. Paul says no, and he speaks, as we've heard from experience. He goes on in verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We must keep remembering Paul's situation as he writes. 
you remember, on earth, here he is languishing in this grim prison cell. He has a story of hardships, persecutions, trials. And even now, his life is in the balance. His days, in fact, might be very short. But notice, Paul doesn't say, once I've escaped the death penalty, or once I'm given my freedom, or once I can get on with productive ministry, then I'll be content. No, he says, he is content right now. But do notice when else Paul says he is content. I guess we're used to the idea that we are not content if we don't have enough, don't have what we need. But what about when you have enough or even more than enough? Think of the wealthiest people you know. Are they content? Are they happy? I doubt it. And even so, we see that in others, but we make the assumption it'll be different for me. If I had plenty, well, then I would be content. But would we? Do you really think that would make the difference? And in fact, we could ask it right now, because just about all of us here are in this situation today. I wonder if you thought, just as we were discussing whether you were in the need or the plenty or somewhere in between, Paul would say, you, virtually all of us, have plenty right now. We have far more than simple food, clothing, and shelter. So are we content today? Or are we still struggling, still trapped without thinking, if only I had, then? So the Apostle Paul, even when abounding, even in plenty, was content. Maybe that's even more remarkable. But that just shows truly his contentment did not depend on these earthly circumstances and things. Take them away, which happened far too often for Paul. Still, he was content. So what then is his secret? He tells us, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Paul's got us thinking about the Christian life as running the race. Zarnell Hughes is the very fast British sprint champion. And he recently had a big race coming up. It was the New York City Grand Prix. And uh, BBC showed us his journal, which he had written before the race. It said this, quote, I'm going to run 9.83. Have faith. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He ran 9.83. The fastest time in the world this year. He was a very happy man. Content. Well, at least initially, he now says he has a new target. But what if Hughes had given his all but run half a second slower? What then of the promise of Philippians 4, verse 13? And also, if he had run so slowly, could he still have been content? So contentedness on life is going well is one thing. What about when it's all going wrong? Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, this verse is often taken out of, we might say, ripped out of context. A bit like those verses we saw last week. This is one of those best thought 
verses. That is, you come up with your earthly aim and your ambition, and you just lay it over with a bit of spirituality, and you go to this verse, except that's not what it's about at all. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? If your aim is to jump over the moon, this verse is not going to help you. The point of this verse is to those who have listened to Philippians so far. You've heard the challenges of living all out for Christ, to keep putting the interests of others before your own, to rejoice even in hardship, to proclaim Christ even in the midst of hostility. Paul says, I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. And that all things must include being content in all these things, come what may. So what are we learning then about contentedness? Look online and many will advise us we must find strength from within. Find some sort of stoic self-sufficiency. That somehow we tell ourselves we have the resources to get through this. Well, notice that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. It is not that he is a superhero Christian at all. In fact, contentedness, true contentedness comes when we realize, actually, I can't make it through of myself. But I do know the Lord. And he has the strength to get me through. And by getting through, not necessarily success in worldly terms, but to keep me trusting in him, seeking to serve him, the Lord will provide that strength when I need it. Contentedness. Sometimes people associate that, don't they, with passivity. Sometimes we say of someone, he or she is content, by which we mean, so they're not really now going to do anything. Well, the Apostle Paul couldn't be, could never be described as passive. He is running the race full on striving, pushing, seeking out opportunities to proclaim Christ. And yet, it's amazing. He did that, and his contentedness was not tied up with those things. When such opportunities were taken away, when his freedoms were constrained, still, he was content. Even when those things went really well, still, that success isn't what made him content. Do you remember in Luke's gospel when those first disciples had been out on mission? They'd had great success, even over demons. They came back excitedly to report to Jesus what had happened. Jesus said to them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And the apostle Paul had learned that lesson. Do you remember that definition earlier of contentedness? It's actually right. It is about one's possessions, status, and situation. But only if we are thinking as heavenly citizens, which is what we are. Our names are in the book of life. We are in Christ. We have a guaranteed future with him. With all of that, we can be content. And that's Paul's mindset. This mindset, if you like, first comes when you turn to Christ as a gift. But then in experience, Paul, like us, needs to learn in all of life and ministry to think this way. 
And I hope you've thought this. As we've seen this in Paul, it's utterly remarkable. This contentedness is what the world longs for. But it's so elusive. And we do long for it because we were made to be content. But never to be content with the things of this world. If we look for contentedness only down here, we will forever be frustrated. We were made for more. And we can have it. And then true contentment will come. And it's far from humdrum. It is wonderful to have this. The world will see it in believers and not understand it, can't get their heads around it. Because after all, remember last time, the peace of God surpasses all understanding. But in Paul, we see it. He was content. And in Christ, so can we. How to be content. Next, how to be rich. So Paul has said he's content whether in abundance or need. But again, he doesn't want the Philippians to hear this as if he's ungrateful for their gift. So let's read on verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So verse 14, we come back to a theme of this letter, partnership, gospel partnership. We've seen so much about striving side by side with fellow believers for the sake of the gospel. And now Paul spells it out. Gospel partnership includes money because gospel ministry costs money. No one else is going to give resources for gospel advance. Unbelievers don't care for it. They are never going to make sacrifices for it. So the question is, what do Christian believers like us spend our money on? And the answer is, like everybody else, we spend our money on what we think is important. Your bank statement and mine will reveal what we think is valuable, because that's where we put our resources. And the Philippians had realized very quickly what really mattered. That's the significance of these geographical details which Paul includes here. If you put it together with Acts 16 and 17, we realize that Paul took the gospel to Philippi, which was in Macedonia, it was the leading city of that region. And when he got there, Paul was opposed, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. No doubt that made a striking impact on those first believers who'd heard the message when they saw what had happened to Saul to Paul. The very next step for Paul, once he was released on this mission trip, was Thessalonica. And that is the point here. Already, those new Philippian Christians had decided that gospel ministry was worth backing financially. And that's what they did right from the beginning. As soon as Paul moved on, they backed him. And we can say it was no flash in the pan, initial enthusiasm, This was a habit they had established because, as Paul wrote this letter, it was probably a decade or so later, and still they are giving financial support to gospel ministry. And so Paul is rejoicing. Why is that? Again, not the reason we might think, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul wasn't excited about this giving because of what it meant for him, but rather for what it meant for the Philippians and what it showed 
about them, Paul could see they'd got it. Right from the beginning, they'd understood the weight of the gospel. But in the language of this letter, it's about salvation and destruction, about heaven and hell, about a glorious future for all who know Christ. They had grasped the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And those who've grasped that, enjoyed that relationship, will want others to share in it too. And not just in a, oh, it would be nice for them, I'd like lots of people to become Christians sort of way. No, the Philippians realized this was going to cost money, their money. So they entered into this gospel partnership. They got out their wallets and their purses and gave. And as Paul sees this in the Philippians, it's almost as if he can see their heavenly bank accounts, which in fact are very healthy and growing. Even as down here, they are giving away what they had like this. Do you remember that rich young man that Jesus once met? That man had wealth. Or really, we should say he had worldly wealth. But do you remember, he wasn't content, was he? What one thing did he need to do? Well, Jesus loved him and so told him, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And remember the man left disheartened, discontent, very sorrowful. He was rich, but he wasn't really rich. How could we tell if he ever became truly rich? Well, when he started to sell those earthly possessions and give away the proceeds. That's the mark of a truly wealthy person. They are in the habit of giving away their worldly wealth. And not like sometimes around here in the city for the sake of being known as a patron or a donor, getting their name on that plaque or anything like that. Not at all. Rather, the truly rich person knows that their wealth is what they have in Christ. And therefore, they want others to have that. And if the Lord has entrusted them with anything that they can give to help make that happen, they'll do that in whatever way that they can. Now, what is worship? Now, hang on, you might be thinking, wrong sermon, you switched to a completely different, unrelated topic. But did we hear Paul's language? Context, back in chapter 2, Paul described himself, this life he was giving, living, as a drink offering poured out on the sacrificial offering of the Philippians' faith. And notice here how in verse 18, Paul describes the Philippians' gospel partnership as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I wonder, did you realize what we've been thinking about all afternoon is worship? Because there's always the temptation, isn't there, to compartmentalize our lives. As if being a Christian, well, that's focused on here on a Sunday afternoon or Tuesday evening or now Wednesday evening in this, this building. As if it's about certain activities, religious activities that we do, but not really about the everyday stuff. Paul is reminding us here, true worship is about all of life. Every time we get out the card or the phone to pay, question is, are we worshipping as we should? Because some Christians take a very long time to realize that if Jesus is Lord of all, that all includes the piggy bank. But not these Philippians. They'd realized 
And so the way they'd used their money, they gave it in gospel partnership. Well, Paul says that is true worship, acceptable, pleasing to God. Which, of course, doesn't mean that this is easy. Maybe even as the Philippians did this, they couldn't help but wondering, but will my needs be met? Well, Paul does want to encourage them with, of course, what they knew already, which is what he says in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul knows we have our earthly needs, just like our heavenly father does. Paul had his needs. So as we heard last time, we'll bring our requests to our heavenly father. And we'll do that not worrying, so to speak, can God cover this or not? Of course he can. Riches in glory. That may include then giving us material provision here on earth. But even if it's not God's plan for us right now to receive whatever that was we were thinking we were needing, God will always give us what we need to keep trusting in him, whether in need or in plenty. So how to be rich? You are rich in Christ. And if that answer to you is simply a letdown to hear that, well, maybe you haven't yet come to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. But if we do know Christ, we do need to be reminded and challenged about these things. Think more and more as heavenly citizens. We do have so much. We couldn't have any more. Well, except there's one way we could have more that Paul has spoken about. Remember, to live is Christ. To die is gain. But until that gain, we want to use whatever earthly resources we've been given, entrusted with what really matters for this true worship, for gospel partnership, for the sake of others. And so verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. All that remains of these concluding comments. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Notice Paul's emphasis again, people, and particularly fellow believers, and especially those of Caesar's household. Isn't that astonishing? Back in chapter one, Paul was rejoicing even in prison because that meant there was those steady stream of guards in turn chained to him to whom he could tell the gospel. He rejoiced, if you like, irrespective of the outcome, just that he got to do that. But it turns out some of Caesar's household had come to Christ. He could now call them brothers, fellow members of God's family. So what a final encouragement from Paul. Proclaim Christ, even to those we think will never turn to him. We do not know from which of the gospel seeds that are sown, maybe even in the midst of opposition, that God will choose to bring forth fruit. The gospel is so powerful and through it, God is at work. And so verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, or as we could put it, the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If you have the Lord Jesus and his grace, you and I are rich beyond imagining. Forgiveness, righteousness, family, 
a glorious guaranteed future. Above all, Christ himself. And with such riches, we can learn to be content, whatever our earthly circumstances, until Christ returns to take us home. I'll lead us in a prayer. We do praise you, our Father, for all that is ours in Christ. And so we ask for your help to live all of life in the light of what we have. Would we use what you have given to us, including our financial resources, for what really matters? Would we trust these your promises here towards us? We thank you that you will supply our every need according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Amen.